This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVO, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, No Thatch Colleges, the Chicago World's Fair, 1933, a paper by William Shortall. This presentation, No Thatch Cottages, will look at the Irish art exhibition at the Chicago World Fair in 1933. First, though, I'll briefly look at where this event fits in my overall research, and I'll mention the Paris uh, exhibition, the Chicago Fair itself, and at some of the other Irish industrial and museum exhibits at, at this fair. My research, uh, as Pat said, is situated where art and politics overlap and interrogates how the Irish Free State harnessed visual art for political purposes in the period from independence until 1934. This engagement between art and politics is much discussed. Quotes here point to conflict, an unhealthy intersection, and the need for engagement between art and, and politics. In any event, as you will see, the 1933 Irish exhibition in Chicago put flesh on the bones of this debate. In my research period, visual art events were often associated with larger national and international spectacles, such as a World Fair, and at home at events like the Dublin Civic Weeks and the Todging Games, and so on. <clears throat> this paper considers how visual culture was used at this 1933 event in constructing and critiquing the state and national identity, but it looks at it through the lens of the state <laughs> rather than through, the, through that of the artist. I'm going to look briefly at these exhibitions to show that the Irish Free State administrations of this period did engage, did have a lens on visual art as something that could be harnessed for political purposes. The 1922 Paris show of about 100 artists and 300 artworks was funded by the state when it had no money and wasn't sure if it had even had a future. Selected by the government, the Minister for Art at the time, Cam Plunkett, wanted, and I quote, a propaganda value from the exhibition. The Enoch Tolchin Art Exhibition of 1922, and I'll just pick that one, and it was the only part of the 1922 event that wasn't cancelled due to civil war, and it is still, as far as I can ascertain, the largest exhibition of Irish art ever held in the state. <coughs> and it had eight civil servants on the selection committee. For that run of five exhibitions held at the Imperial Art Gallery London, the Executive Council of the state, i.e. the Taoiseach and ministers of the day, met annually to discuss the event and appoint a committee to select the artwork. The last of these exhibitions on the list, paid for and harnessed by the state in this period, at the Chicago World Fair, an event also known as the Century of Progress Exposition was a contentious engagement between state and artists over the selection of the artwork. This was the first state-sponsored transatlantic art exhibition and the first international exhibition supported by the new de Valera-led Fianna Fáil government elected in 1932. The other exhibitions were under the Common Gael remit. The Irish Free State was officially invited to participate in the fair in January 1930. It was a celebration of the centenary anniversary of the incorporation of the city of Chicago, and it wanted to showcase the technological progress made during that century. The organisers requested both scientific, industrial and artistic cultural displays from Ireland and other participating nations. 
International participation was sought to reflect the many nations that had, had helped build Chicago and also because progress uh, has or had no boundaries. The fair opened in May 1933. The exposition's focus on technological innovation as progress was reflected in the buildings and architecture of the fair, which is modernist, featuring clean lines, largely unadorned, except for some art deco features of bold geometric and symmetrical shapes. An example of this shown here was the monumental travel and transport building, with its suspended roof that expanded and contracted by nearly two metres as the temperature varied. This building housed the Irish exhibit. A sky ride transported fair attendees across the lake in rocket-shaped machines. Every fair had tried to develop a defining icon. For, for example, the Chicago 1893 fair developed a Ferris wheel. The Eiffel Tower was built for the 1889 exposition in Paris, and the sky ride was the 1933 icon. If you look at Patty news uh, films of the fair, you will see cars travelling at record speeds on circuits and exhibitions of modern homes and scientific achievements. All these reinforce the fair's theme of science finds, industry applies, man conforms. So there was cutting-edge architecture, there was speed, flight, even the advertising posters all screamed modern. The Irish Free State had to position itself in the middle of this exciting melee, and this led to early reticence and reluctance to participate. A sort of national anxiety over participation was evident during early discussions. The fair was originally scheduled to close for good in November 1933, but commercial opportunity meant it ran again between May and October 1934. The Irish Free State only participated in 1933, and that's important because anything you read about the fair usually indicates that the state took part in 1934 as well. There were Irish events, but not, not official. <coughs> A primary source for information on Irish participation are the National Archives files, which detail the invitation to participate and the various reports and memos which show that the government's torturous consideration overtaking part. Most of the consideration were about the negative financial value. Tariffs meant there was little trade opportunity apart from the Gaeltacht industries. Other, discuss other discussions identified potential to attract American and diaspora tourists, but even then it was stated that spending this money on advertising in the UK and Europe would show a much better return. However, as more than one memo stated, considerations such as those connected with national publicity and prestige might outweigh the more tangible considerations of trading advantage, what we would term today as soft power and cultural diplomacy. Essentially, they were going to show off the state. As the Irish Free Consul in New York said, the development of the country since 1922, again, soft power motivation. National pride was at stake, and this spills out from the memos and reports in the archives file. Having heard that the English were sending Stevenson's rocket, consideration was given to sending the drum battery coach, a sort of Irish railway equivalent. The state feared that any industrial display, as we can see here, would not compare well with the larger or more ambitious displays of other countries. They needn't have worried, because the central industrial display of the Shannon scheme, the largest hydroelectric station in the world at that time, was a, su was a success. Writing about the Chicago Fair, the London Financial Times commented that the Shannon scheme broke the Irish inferiority complex, and the New York Times commented how the Irish Free State transformed the River Shannon to a great new power development. Both articles spoke of a modern, forward-looking nation. This slide here is of the exhibition, and the map in the front is associated with the Shannon display of distribution of electricity. Also in this, you can see 
and there's some better images later of, of the exhibit. We can see some of the artwork at the back walls, and we can see some embroidered vestments, and we can see cartoons for stained glass, or maybe stained glass itself, I, I, I can't tell. While the interdepartmental report feared that Ireland would not compete well in the industrial section, the keeper of Irish antiquities at the museum, Adolf Maher, had no such concerns in relation to the ancient or museum display. He selected the Irish Museum exhibits. In a letter to the Department of Education, he stated, as we see in the slide, that archaeology is certainly a subject that in which the Irish Free State outshines many other wealthier countries. These ancient exhibits included copies of the Arda Chalice, St. Patrick's Bell and the Tara Brooch, and other material, including recent finds by American archaeologists working in Ireland in the 1930s. Including these items, some here in this slide, <coughs> made a direct connection with an American public and pointed to archaeology as a modern endeavour. Archaeological historian Mairead Crew has written extensively about these American archaeologists from Harvard and their mission in 1930s Ireland in her recent book, The Quest for the Irish Celt. Also included in this section were large contemporary photographs of what the newspapers called Irish types. The museum display was approved by the Minister for Education, Thomas Derrick. These ancient exhibits were presented alongside the contemporary arts and crafts items. And some of the examples of these in the next few slides. But this is a common approach in exhibitions to include the contemporary arts and crafts with, with the ancient work, or as the museum called it here, uh, the material from the Golden Age. So it showed contemporary Irish crafts in a continuum with these items from the Golden Age to the present day. Uh, and this was to show that Ireland was not a new state, sorry, I should be moving on here, was not a new state, but a country with an ancient heritage which had reclaimed her independence. Daniel uh, J. McGrath, Irish consul in Chicago, was commissioner for Irish participation. In a radio interview, he said the contemporary arts and crafts show the same delicate perfection and of execution as the older items, examples of genius within the race. The largest team, majority of contemporary arts and crafts exhibits, about a quarter of the 150 items in this section, were religious, such as stained glass by various artists from Harry Clark Studios, processional banners by Gertie Grew and the Cluna Studios, vestments by the Dunemer Guild, and various examples of liturgical art. All served to emphasise the distinctiveness of Ireland as the island of saints and scholars, underpinning the country's historical and contemporary association with the Catholic Church and an ancient heritage. Among the other items, many were of neo-Celtic design. There were examples of Irish lace and metalwork. There were numerous prints of Irish life and Irish scenes of everyday life in a functioning state by the Cooley industry and, and others such as um, Dorothy Blackham and Kathleen Quigley and, and more people as well. These two Cooley pieces uh, celebrate Irish storytelling and the Abbey Theatre through craft skills, print and needlecraft. The Arts and Crafts exhibition was managed by Gertie Grew of the Cleaner Studios. There is surprisingly uh, little about the exhibition of paintings in the National Archives file. The main source for this is Dermot O'Brien's papers in the Royal Hibernian Academy, the RHA archive. Archives in Chicago provided the Irish art catalogue and the shipping import records for all the exhibits, which enabled a compilation of the arts and crafts works displayed, for which there was no catalogue. The National Museum published a booklet, seen here on the right, on contribution to the ancient section, which mentions some of the exhibits, but doesn't include a list. And that's just a sample of some of the shipping records. The various Chicago archives also contain substantial material and other aspects of Irish involvement in the fair that are outside the scope of this presentation. 
The RHA O'Brien file is a contemporary record of events, including the government invitation, specifically a letter from the Department of Industry and Commerce to O'Brien on the instruction of Minister Sean Lamas to assist in organising and selecting the art exhibition. The letter stated that RHA members Leo Whelan and Sean O'Sullivan and an officer of the department, an unnamed civil servant, but it was a guy called Philip Dempsey, would make up the selection committee. The state and not the artists would control and manage the image of the free state presented in this exhibition. This is just another photograph of the Chicago exhibit. Uh, The invite stated uh, a space of 1,569 square feet has been reserved for the display of free state goods and that it is highly desirable that there should be a representative display of pictures by living Irish artists, some of which you see in this slide. On this one, you can probably make out some of them. There is substantial correspondence with the exhibiting artists over artwork selected and rejected. As president of the RHA, O'Brien took responsibility for all correspondence with the artists and with the department or the state. O'Brien drew up a list of artists and contacted them for submissions. The requested artworks were delivered by the participating artists to the Metropolitan School of Art. However, a number of paintings were rejected for not meeting the criteria mandated by the department. These criteria stated that work submitted should represent free state interests, and this was particularly applied to artists who were non-resident in the state. Specifically, the rejection letters sent by O'Brien to the, to the artists concerned <coughs> stated that representations of Irish life as emanating from thatch cottages were not acceptable. Also rejected were paintings interpreted as advertising beauty spots in the six counties. For example, artist William Connor had two paintings rejected. One depicted an orange procession, the other shown here of shipbuilders, which possibly included a detail of a small Union Jack flag, which is mentioned in in the the rejection letter. Uh, These subjects were deemed not, in the opinion of the Minister's representative, of free state interest. Also, images of the frugal comforts of attached cottage life, a motif that artists had used as a virtual icon of Irish rural life at this time and before, were taught to represent poverty and lack of progress and were excluded. James Humbert Craig had his painting, Muckish County Donegal, which included images of attached cottages rejected, but he had another work without cottages accepted. (laughs) O'Brien's letter stated that he contested the rejections and he sympathised with the artist implying clearly that he had his hand forced by the government department. O'Brien really was displaying his diplomatic skills. Many of the rejected artists replied, complaining about the process of the selection committee. Humbert Craig was particularly incensed and complained that the new government should encourage the fine arts instead of using them for commercial purposes. He further adds that the areas of Donegal he paints only have thatch cottages and wonders if the critic from the ministry knows that Muckish is in the free state. Paul Henry asked for details about what was happening, even though the single work he submitted, a Connemara Lake, and I have a, an image of a Connemara Lake. I don't think this was the actual work, but it's around the same time, and I'd say the style is probably similar. Uh, his Connemara Lake was accepted. He expressed dismay that the Minister for Industry and Commerce practically dictated what was to be such and what was not. Henry wrote to O'Brien again a week later, stating that paintings of his task cottages were his best sellers in America and raised questions about the participation of Kelly, Gerald Festus Kelly, an English artist, and William Orpen, who did all his late work outside the country. In the end, there was no work by Orpen, but he did feature in this exhibit by Slater. By this time, the newspapers had the story, 
The Irish Independent stated that certain works of Irish artists, non-resident in Ireland, was rejected because it did not deal with purely stereotyped subjects. It adds that other exhibits had to be turned down through various considerations. In the space available, they could fit 77 paintings, which are representative of what is being done in Ireland at the moment. The Northern Papers, however, the Belfast Newsletter and the Daily Mail were more forthright and both led with an identical opening sentence. Politics have invaded the realm of art. Back in the RHA, they were speculating who was stirring trouble in the press. The consensus reckoned it was William Connor. Both Northern press reports referred to the representative of the Ministry of Industry and Commerce censoring the artwork and excluding paintings which contained a six-county interest. Artists were quoted as being annoyed and as saying the whole affair is cheap, contemptible and childish, adding, adding that it may be conjectured that they, the Artists on the Selection Committee, too are very much annoyed. It was suggested that the astounding boycott of Ulster paintings by the Free State Art Committee should be raised in the British Parliament to ask what steps the government are taking to prevent Ulster artists from being penalised in this manner. These reports mention Northern art has been represented in the UK section, but the British didn't ex exhibit contemporary art in Chicago. Indeed, Ireland, uh, as this slide says, seems to have led the way, or as this article subheading says as well, started trend with its contemporary art exhibition. Uh, exhibition. The, re the rejection of work was clearly problematic for artists on the selection committee. It challenged the concept of artistic freedom and it had the potential to undermine the personal relationships and cultural networks that existed within the larger artistic community of the free state and outside. O'Brien mitigated the potential damage in the official rejection letters he sent by identifying the minister's representative, the nameless civil servant, and his name is not mentioned in any file, as the censor and sympathising with the artists. The slide just really, uh, it's of interest because the heading Modern Ireland is, is revealed by display at World Fair. But just in, in, in the last paragraph as well, what it shows is the people who were involved in running the, 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 the Irish exhibit. So Daniel J. McGraw was the consul, he was the commissioner. And you have Mary T. O'Donnell of Chicago uh, in charge of the display. And she was assisted by Carla Carl, Ernie O'Malley, and Hugh Smith. Despite this modern heading, judging by the titles of the majority of the paintings exhibited, they could still be described as conventional views of Irish subject matter in a realist style. One third were rural scenes, predominantly west of Ireland, exampled by, by titles like Portrait of a Connemara Girl and Turf Boat by Charles Lamb, Aran Islands by Bridget O'Brien, Stony, Stony Headland by Power O'Malley. However, these were tempered with the inclusion of work by Nana Reid, Margaret Clark, Jack Yates and others. Yates Man doing accounts is an scene here. It's an expressionist, thick-layered painting depicting a modern urban scene of a man doing accounts, a fashionable woman on the street, and a landscape in the distance. That's Mary Swansea. A piece similar to that because I picked it out from the from one of the exhibit photographs that was, was exhibited. Uh, this Clark's and we heard about Mark Clark earlier, and this is a piece that was mentioned earlier but not discussed. Stringvergian drew his team from August Stringberg's modern drama, The Ghost Sonata. And uh, Carla Briggs has written about this painting, an Irish women artist, familiar but unknown. The painting is an allegorical meditation on the human condition relocated to an, to an Irish uh, landscape. These are two of Sean Keating's three uh, exhibits, and, and one of these was up earlier, the one on the right, uh, his Homo sapiens. And as Emer explained, that it was a satire on progress, which is ironic given that the team in fear was progress. 
Other works included George Atkinson's Etchings of the Modern Industrial Development of the Shannon Scheme. The majority of artworks, however, reflected a traditional nationalist, essentialist view of Ireland and the West of Ireland. Uh, sorry, it's Harry Carnoff, Quincy McNamara. There were, there were no political portraits, that's one thing I thought. This is a view of Muckish with a, a slate cottage that was included by Theo Gracie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Clifford Gartz, the off-quoted cultural anthropologist, states that rarely is the ideology of new nations purely essentialist, rooted in the past culture and, and tradition, rooted in culture and tradition, or purely apocalypse, all-embracing economic development and modernity, looking to the future. <clears throat> Ireland wasn't exceptional in this regard, and the hybridity of Ireland's exhibits, including the art exhibits in Chicago, engaged directly with this cultural discourse. The skilled craftwork, the modernist paintings and the industrial exhibits were representative of a modern Ireland, one that was progressing through industrialisation. The country's most significant project, the Shannon Hydroelectric Scheme, documented at the fair in both the industrial and art exhibits, was utterly modern. The balance between showing a unique identity and ancient heritage coupled with industrial progress demonstrated how the Irish state and its artists were balancing modernity and essentialism. The progress made since 1922 that the Irish state and their diplomats in the US wished to, sh wished to showcase was explicitly documented in the official handbook published by the state in 1932 and was on sale at the fair. Irish language publications from Angoon and Gum, the state publishing house, were unlikely to sell to the large English-speaking audience, but did demonstrate the Consul General's theme of the free state's intention to assert its cultural identity. The state's demand that the Irish exhibits represent free state interests reflected the political context of 1930s Ireland and the rise of nationalism internationally. In this free state first approach, anything that might confer, confer political legitimacy on the six counties as British territory was out. The deliberate actions of the government in excluding images of thatched cottages in rural Ireland to avoid any suggestions of a lack of progress or poverty or parochial mentalities is a little bit at odds with Irish art historical scholarship of this period, which usually cites Paul Henry's thatch cottages as coinciding with the Free State's official construct of Ireland. The exhibits in Chicago were used to describe an ancient, culturally rich state, the Irish people as culturally distinct, and the Free State as rural, yet industrially pro progressive, Catholic and Gaelic. It did not wish to showcase the myriad of social and economic challenges facing the state at this time. For this event, the official version of Irish art and culture was jealously guarded at home by the state, and the Department of Industry and Commerce, and in Chicago by the Consul General McGrath. McGrath threatened, threatened the fair organisers with legal action if a privately operated village concession run by Irish-American business people was presented as having any state involvement or approval. He feared it would offer a false version of Ireland by trading on hackneyed images of shamrocks, blarney stones, leprechauns and drunkards, everything the official presentation in 1933 sought to avoid. The Free State carefully constructed an image of itself for an American public. These images combined to reflect the progress of the Irish nation since independence, the values of the Irish as an independent people and the aspirations for the future of the new state. In doing this, they avoided a backward-looking or touch cottage identity. That's it. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art in Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative 
between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVO, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.